You can turn with me to Luke 24. Our second to last message in the book of Luke. Why does God hide things from His people? If you were to survey the Bible, you're going to find a number of people who begged God to answer their questions. They saw things that were happening in their lives and they didn't understand why God was working in a particular way or why He wasn't working in a particular way. And our own experience can probably resonate with that. No doubt you have walked through situations in your own life where you wondered, what is God doing? Why is He hiding stuff from me? Why doesn't He tell me what's going on? And maybe it even felt like God Himself was hiding from you. Why? Why does God hide things from His people? Why does He even hide Himself? From his people. Well, in our text today, we find God hiding Jesus from those who are walking right beside him. Luke 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, 
he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word for us today. Luke gives us two scenes in this passage. A scene on the road and a scene at the table. And we'll use one word for each of these scenes. Explanation on the road and revelation at the table. First, explanation. How does Luke set up this scene? Well, verse 13, he tells us that very day. Well, what day is this? It's still the first day of the week. It's still the day when the women went to the tomb and found it empty. It's the day on which Jesus was raised. And it's on that very same day that two of the larger gathering of disciples were on their way to Emmaus, a little town about two hours, three hours walk from Jerusalem, seven miles. And they're on their way to this town. Maybe it was their home. Maybe they're going to visit somebody. We're not sure. One of them is named later in this text, verse 18, Cleopas. But the second one is not named. Could be Cleopas's wife, could be another friend. And what are they doing as they walk? Well, verse 14 says they were talking. And then it says again, talking. And verse 15, discussing. And then when Jesus shows up, he asks them, what is this conversation? So what are they doing as they walk? They're processing out loud. They're debating back and forth, maybe even arguing. They're trying to make sense of all this stuff that has just happened and what are the things that they're talking about. Verse 14, all these things that had happened. What are those things? Well, it's the events that took over the headlines of the Jerusalem Post. It's the things which were all over social media with the hashtag Jerusalem. These things were the suffering and death of a man named Jesus. And these two disciples are trying to make sense of everything that's gone on, what's happened in the last three to four days. And as they're in the middle of this heated conversation back and forth, verse 15 says that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. He catches up to him and starts walking with him. All right. We missed him last week. We had a whole sermon where we didn't see Jesus and we didn't hear from him. He had died. He was buried in the tomb. And then what happened? 
Well, all of a sudden, he shows up. This is the first time we've seen him after the crucifixion. And now he's walking with some of his disciples. And so, they're going to believe in him. They're going to rejoice at seeing him again, right? Hardly. Verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. You may remember we've heard this type of language before a couple of times in Luke's gospel. Uh, Several times, Jesus predicted to his men that he would suffer and he would die. And several of those times, Luke tells us that their eyes were kept from understanding. They were kept from grasping what he meant. Here again, on the road... They are kept not merely from understanding his words, they're kept from even recognizing who he is. This guy shows up and he's walking on the road beside him and they've got no clue who this stranger is. And let us clarify, it's not because Jesus looked differently in his physical body because from this point on, all of his friends are going to recognize him when they see him. This is a supernatural withholding of recognition. Why? Why would God keep these two from recognizing Jesus when he shows up right next to them? Well, to answer that, we need to keep going to find out. Jesus joins the two travelers, and it's obvious to this lone traveler when he catches up to them that they are having an intense conversation. I mean, How long did it take him to catch up? We don't know. But he's probably hearing their conversation as he's catching up to them on the road. So as he catches up, he says, what's this conversation you're having? And you can almost hear Cleopas turn to him and say, where have you been? What rock have you been hiding under? There's no way someone could be in Jerusalem these last few days and not know what we're talking about. How can you not know about these things? And Jesus, I love this. Verse 19. I love his question. What things? Says the man with scars in his hands and his feet. What things? Jesus is a master of asking questions. If you read through the Gospels, notice how he asks questions to probe to pry and to draw out what is inside the people around him. And when he asks this, it's like the floodgates open from Cleopas. His words come fast and furious. He just unloads. It's like he says, what things? Well, there was this guy named Jesus of Nazareth who came from a podunk town, and yet everybody knew he was a prophet of God. Why? Because he said amazing things and he worked supernatural miracles. But then our own rulers and our religious leaders turned him over to the Romans. He got condemned and he got crucified. What? Why? But before that happened, we actually thought, we thought he was going to be the redeemer of Israel. We thought he was going to rescue our nation and restore us to power. But now, it's the third day since he got killed. He's cold in a tomb somewhere. Or now his body's gone from the tomb. He's cold somewhere else. But just this morning, you know, some women who are friends of ours, they went to his tomb and found the tomb empty. 
They didn't find his body. And they came back with this crazy story about seeing angels who said that he's alive. So some of our other guys went to the tomb and found it was empty, but they didn't see Jesus. And when Cleopas has finally exhausted all of his words, how does Jesus respond? I can tell you're really sad and hurt, so let me try to help you feel better. Try again. Verse 25. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's not the therapist they're looking for. Jesus says, you are so senseless and sluggish. You are unwilling to believe what's right in front of you. Something has gone very wrong with these two disciples. And what is it? What has gone wrong? Well, let's think about this. What does Jesus say is their problem? He doesn't chastise them for failing to recognize him. He doesn't say, guys, hello, I'm right here. No, what does he say? He, he criticizes them for failing to believe what the prophets had spoken long ago. He's saying, you don't believe the scriptures. You've missed critical information in your Bibles. And that's quite a statement to these two followers who had just said a lot of stuff which flowed from their Bibles. So let's review a couple things that Cleopas said. He said, we thought that Jesus was a prophet. Well, that's a good start. They knew their Old Testament prophets. They knew how to see a prophet, how to determine who was a prophet, and they had determined that Jesus was a prophet. It's a good start. What's the second thing that Cleopas says? We had thought Jesus was the Redeemer. So they know their Old Testament. They know that the God of heaven was going to send a Messiah, a rescuer, who would deliver his people. So that's a good start. They know their Bibles. But Jesus says, but you've missed some critical information from your Bibles. And what is that information that they've missed? Verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Ah, there it is. Was it not necessary? There's Luke's word again, the divine must. Didn't this have to happen? God had a plan. God told you what the plan was. It had to happen and it's been carried out. Messiah was not just coming in glory to deliver the nation of Israel and to rule as a conqueror. Messiah had to suffer. And so, because these disciples had missed a suffering Messiah, they had missed Messiah, period. That's a problem. But what does Jesus do? Does he leave them with a stinging rebuke? Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus rebukes them, but then he says, let me show you. And he starts to walk 
through the Scripture, unfolding the Scriptures to them. Well, which Scriptures? What does it say? Beginning with Moses. What does that mean? Well, Moses is shorthand for the books that Moses wrote, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. So when you say he begins with Moses, he starts walking through the first five books of the Bible. And then how does he continue? He continues through all the prophets. And that is shorthand for the rest of the Jewish scriptures, the rest of what we know as the Old Testament. So Moses and the prophets are shorthand for the whole Old Testament. And if you want to check that out, just look at the other Gospels and at the New Testament letters when they start to talk about the law and the prophets. Moses and the prophets. Look up that, those phrases through your New Testament. They're using it as a summary for the whole Old Testament. Moses and the prophets. And what is he showing to them in the Old Testament? The things concerning himself. He showed Cleopas and friend that the whole Old Testament pointed to him. Brothers and sisters, all of Scripture is all about Christ. The whole Bible points to Jesus. And Luke doesn't give us specific examples of the passages that Jesus walked through on this journey to Emmaus. Wouldn't you have liked to listen in on that conversation? I mean, I don't know how long he had with them in this several-hour trek, but that would have been quite a Bible study. But we can actually have a good idea of what Jesus may have shared with these two. How? Well, if you start looking at the book of Acts, where the apostles start to preach about the risen Jesus, they start pulling passages from the Old Testament which pointed to Christ. Then you start reading through the New Testament letters and Paul and Peter and James and John and Jude are pulling from the Old Testament showing how all of that pointed to Christ. And so... If you read your New Testament, you can see the kinds of passages that Jesus pulled on from the Old Testament. And what's interesting is that when you look through the New Testament, sometimes these authors pull passages from the Old Testament that if you just read them on their own in the middle of the Old Testament, you would never imagine that was talking about the Messiah. That was talking about Jesus. But the New Testament authors look back through the cross and they pull it and they say, it's talking about Jesus. So perhaps Jesus went back to Moses' first words about the fall of Adam and Eve when God promised that the woman's seed would crush the head of the serpent even as his heel was crushed. Maybe Jesus rehearsed Moses' words about God's covenant with Abraham that God had promised He would bless the whole world through Abraham's family. Maybe Jesus went to Moses' words about the prophet Balaam, who had declared that a star would come out of Jacob and a scepter would arise out of Judah. A king 
would come from the tribe of Judah. Maybe Jesus turned to the book of Judges and showed that God's wicked and rebellious people desperately needed a deliverer to pull them out from going their own way. Maybe Jesus shared the words of Samuel who wrote about a shepherd boy who confronted a giant. And Jesus could tell the disciples that a king greater than David would face an enemy greater than that giant and would deliver his people. Maybe Jesus went back to the words of Samuel when God promised David that an eternal king would come through his family. Maybe Jesus turned to the prophet Hosea, a man who was pursuing a wayward and immoral wife. And Jesus could tell the disciples about the great bridegroom who would lay down his life to rescue his bride. Surely Jesus would turn to the words of Isaiah, the prophet who said that God's servant would give his back to the smiters and would give his cheek to those who would pluck out the beard. And no doubt Jesus would visit the prophet Zechariah who declared that God's people would look on the one they had pierced and they would mourn. And do you remember that comment that Cleopas made about the third day? It's now the third day since all these things happened. What was Cleopas' point? Three days after somebody dies, there's no way he's the Redeemer. He's cold and dead. But maybe Jesus reminded the two disciples of the story of Abraham taking Isaac to sacrifice him. And on the third day of their journey, Abraham saw the place of sacrifice and took his son to slaughter him. Maybe Jesus took them to the prophet Hosea who called God's people to repent. And Hosea said, after two days, God will revive us. On the third day, God will raise us up. The disciples thought the third day was proof Jesus was not the Messiah because he's dead. And Jesus said, no, the third day is proof that I am the Messiah because I'm back. So brothers and sisters, all of Scripture is all about Christ. The whole Bible points to Jesus. Now when someone makes that claim, all of the Bible is about Christ, I think there can be a couple of different reactions to that. One reaction can be excitement. Yeah, all right. And so you start squeezing Jesus into every verse and squeezing Jesus out of every, every verse. And then the people around you start to think, well, that's really forced. That's really disingenuous. And if somebody speaks that way, it can sound like, are we reading the same text that you are? So there can be this overexcitement to see Jesus in every little word and verse. On the other hand, there can be another response, which is, I want to stay faithful to Scripture. I don't want to force things into it which aren't there. And so, unless there's a specific prophecy or a specific prediction that clearly points to Jesus, then I'm not going to try to force Jesus into a text. Both can have their dangers. 
And this one, I think, doesn't take into account the overarching redemptive plan of God through the whole story of Scripture. And it doesn't take into account the fact that there's a lot of patterns and shadows and echoes of Jesus all through the Old Testament. Yes, much of the Old Testament is about the workings of the God of heaven, and it doesn't talk explicitly about a Savior or a Messiah who's coming, but every part of the Old Testament is pointing humanity to their need of a Savior. And so therefore, we can preach Christ from all of Scripture. Think about this. So let's say on a Sunday, we were to have a Muslim come and join us or an Orthodox Jew come and join us for our service. And let's say I preach a text from the Old Testament. And as I talk, they can nod their heads with everything I say. That would be a problem. And why do I use those two as an example? Well, a Muslim and an Orthodox Jew are both believers in one God. One God who is the creator, who is all-powerful, who works in his world, who judges sin, and who even is merciful to sinners. Well, that sounds pretty good. But if a Muslim and an Orthodox Jew can sit here and nod along with my sermon from the Old Testament, then there's something wrong. What is the difference between our preaching here and what they would hold to? What is the difference in Christian preaching? It is Christ. So we must point to Him from all parts of Scripture. The God of heaven has chosen to work in His creation. How? Through His anointed Son. The God of heaven created the universe, how? Through His Son, the Word. The God of heaven is upholding the universe through His Son. The God of heaven has chosen to redeem sinful humans through His Son. The God of heaven is going to rule over new heavens and a new earth forever through His Son. And so that means that all of human history and all of Scripture point to the Son, Christ. So what does this mean for you? What does it mean for our church? Well, first, let me offer some words to you individually. As you read the Bible, look for Jesus. And in one sense, that's a skill that has to be cultivated because it's not like his name is all through Deuteronomy and Numbers and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. So how do we do this? Jesus said to the Jews and to their religious leaders in John 5, you search the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. And what were the scriptures that these Jewish leaders were looking at? They're looking at the Old Testament. So he says, the Old Testament points to me. So when we read even our Old Testaments, we need to be looking for how is it pointing toward a Messiah? How is it pointing toward a Savior? How is it pointing toward Christ? 
And you might say, Abe, I want to see this. How do I do this? Well, hold that thought, hold that question for just a moment. Keep that tension in your mind, and we'll come back to that question. But for now, let me just say this. And this goes to our big header for point number one. We recognize Jesus when he opens the scriptures. We recognize Jesus when he opens what? The scriptures, all the scriptures. So as you read the scriptures, no matter where you are, ask him to open your eyes and look for him. How about some words for our church? How does this affect us? Well, in our children's classes, as we teach our children the stories of Scripture, the stories of our Bibles, we need to teach our children about the Christ that all of that Scripture is pointing to. So we don't merely tell our kids interesting stories about Samson and David and Rahab and Daniel, because we're not just trying to get our kids to imitate other people or to imitate moral behavior from those people. We tell our, our children about the Christ who rescues those very people by his salvation that he brings. And to give you a little insight into this, just in this last year, Noah Smith, who's over our children's church program, has implemented a new curriculum called the Gospel Story. And in it, it emphasizes throughout the Old Testament, pointing toward, looking toward Christ in all of these different stories. So whether we're looking at Samson or Rahab or Daniel or David, we're not just stopping with them. We're looking beyond them to the God and the Christ who rescues people like them. A word to parents, specifically dads. Teach your children, as you go through the scriptures, teach your children about the Savior. Now, you may feel ill-equipped. I don't know how to do that. I mean, how do I turn to Deuteronomy and tell my kids about the Savior? Well, there are some helpful resources out there which can really be a benefit to you and your families, and I'm going to offer you a few. So, here's one. Big, colorful, the big picture story Bible. And this is a book written for preschool age by a pastor named Dave Helm. Really colorful, simple words, small sentences, but it's about the big picture of the whole Bible and how it's pointing toward the redemptive work of God. So that's one for preschool age. Here's a second one, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Every story whispers his name. Read and weep for joy. I read, I've read this with our kids growing up, and it's better for adults than it is for children. But it's written for elementary ages. So dads, get this and read it with your kids. Every story whispers his name. That's the subtitle of that one. This one, a title that's a little off-putting, I think. The Biggest Story Bible Storybook. How confusing is that? Written by another pastor, Kevin DeYoung. But again, written 
with the sense of the big story of Scripture, God's redeeming work through all of human history through His Son, Jesus. So there's a few resources for you. Lay your hands on them. Sit down with your, with your kids, with your family, and read them. One more word about our church as a whole. In our preaching, in our preaching of the Bible, I am going to focus on the person and work of Christ no matter where we are in Scripture. In the Gospels, it's kind of easy because Jesus is right there in front of us, talking, speaking, acting. But you've already gotten a little hint of this because I've been taking you back into the Old Testament a lot as we've gone through Luke's Gospel. And I'm really excited about, in the months and years ahead, Lord willing, preaching some Old Testament books so that you can see how we anticipate and look for the coming Messiah. We recognize Jesus when he opens the scriptures, when he unveils them to us. But how about that nagging question that I asked just a minute ago? How do I learn to see Jesus in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. We turn to our second header, our second big word, revelation, revealing. Here's our scene at the table. Luke tells us in verse 28, here in Luke 24, that the travelers draw near to Emmaus. They're getting close to their destination. And listen to this. Jesus acted as if he were going farther. That's interesting. Why would he do that? Well, how did, how did the disciples respond as he intends to move on? No, 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 no. Come stay with us. Stay with us. What if they had said, hey, thanks for the great talk. So good. Have a good rest of your trip. And on he goes. What would have been the result of that? They might never have known who it was on the road talking to them because they still don't know who this is. This is still some random guy who just caught up with them on the road. They don't know who it is yet. We're going to see in a moment that something amazing happens at the table. But let me make this observation first. You do not receive more of Jesus unless you first welcome him. You don't see more of Jesus, as these disciples will in a moment. You don't see more of him unless you invite him in, unless you welcome him. I mean, this would be similar to meeting a Christian on an airplane flight. Let's say you're on a trip, and you sit down next to somebody, you strike up a conversation with them, and you discover, hey, they're a Christian too. And you have a couple hours flight, and you have a great conversation that's really encouraging but then when you get off, you go your separate ways and you may never see that person again. You don't really know them. It was a nice gift from God, but who are they? For these two disciples, more sight was given to them when they urged Jesus to stay, when they welcomed him in. So friend, if you refuse to welcome Jesus, he may not reveal himself to you. 
He opens himself to those who receive him. And what happens when he's at the table? Verse 30. Oh, here he is, another meal. And let me just make this comment. Once more, Jesus is at a table with people. So let us not minimize our meals, the importance of our meals. They are significant times of deep fellowship and nourishment with each other, if we will let them be. Jesus is at a table, and this time, though, he doesn't just remain a guest. He becomes the host. What does he do? Verse 30, he takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them. Why does he do that? Why does he basically take the role of the host and break the bread and offer it to them? What is he doing? Why is he doing that? I think it is a picture of what he's already been doing on the road. It's a picture of how he has been nourishing them with his teaching And then he sits down at the table and says, I'm going to feed you now as I've been feeding you for the last two hours. I fed you with myself, and now I'm going to feed you with some stuff. And this is what Jesus does for those who fellowship with him. He doesn't just give you stuff. He gives you himself. He is the bread of life. He is the one who nourishes your soul. And so before they even ate bread to nourish their bodies, they needed to be nourished by Jesus himself. We recognize Jesus when God opens our eyes. And so what happens at the table? As he breaks the bread, verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. In the moment of nourishment, God opens their eyes. They realize who it was who's been teaching them all along the road. And you notice, they did not open their own eyes. They couldn't do that. They didn't recognize this guy, and they wouldn't have recognized him unless God had opened their eyes. And this is the answer to the question that I asked a moment ago. How do I see Jesus in the Bible? Ask God to open your eyes because this is a supernatural book which can only be understood supernaturally when the Spirit of Jesus opens our eyes to see Jesus in the Bible. So we recognize Jesus when God opens our eyes and this is why an old hymn says, Oh, send your Spirit, Lord, now unto me, that he may touch my eyes and make me see. Show me the truth concealed in your word, and in your book revealed I see the Lord. God opens the eyes of these disciples and they see Jesus. And that's what he still does for us today. But what happens right after they recognize him? (laughs) I love the irony of this. Verse 31. And he vanished from their sight. Wait, what? Why? 
They didn't recognize him all along the road. They don't recognize him at the table. And all of a sudden, he tears the bread. They do recognize him, and then he's gone. Like, as soon as you recognize Jesus, you want to have more time with him, right? So why did God hide Jesus from these disciples? Why does God hide things from his people? Well, look at what the disciples say next. Verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Why did God keep them from recognizing Jesus? Apparently, their greater need was not to see Jesus in person. It was to see Jesus in the Scripture. And why would that be the bigger need? Because the personal experience of Jesus was going to end in just a short while, and he would not be with them again. So what did they need to sustain their faith? They needed to have seen him here so they could go back here and see him again and again and again and again. And also, if Jesus had walked up to them on the side of the road and they had turned and said, it's him, would they have heard anything he said after that? Probably not. So if Jesus had then started to explain the scripture, forget it. How do we know that? Because earlier Jesus had told them, guys, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. And then when Jesus died, they all went, oh no, it's over. What are we going to do? So Jesus doesn't come to them and say, I'm here. No, he comes veiling their eyes so that he can teach them. And then when he opens their eyes, they can go back here and say, oh, we saw him and we want to see him again. Why is this important? Because the scriptures, not your experience, are where you look for Jesus. Some of you may know that the Mormons, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, talk about an experience called the burning in the bosom or the burning heart. And they take it from this passage. Now the Mormons like to pass themselves off as Christians and they use a lot of the same terminology that we do. But there are stark doctrinal differences. They are not biblical Christians. What do they do with this sense of a burning heart? Well, they say that if a person wants to know the truth, then you read a passage of the Bible or one of their other holy books, and then you ask God to show you if it's true. And if you get a warm feeling inside, the burning heart, then you know it's true. What's the difference between that and what's going on with these disciples? The Mormons look to their own feeling to tell them whether something is true. These disciples heard truth and their hearts were ignited by it. 
It was a response to truth. It was not standing over truth and deciding with a feeling whether it was true. So friends, we must be very careful that our experience and our feeling does not trump the truth of Scripture. And yet, the truth of Scripture should set our hearts on fire because this is truth about a God who is worthy to be praised and a Christ who has come to rescue His people from their sins. And so these two disciples were hearing truth and they were seeing the Messiah all through their Old Testament Scriptures. They were seeing things they had never seen before and their hearts were lit on fire. And maybe you've felt this before where you're seeing truth you've never seen before. Thank God for experiences like that. But let us not rely upon them. God knows it is more important for us that we see Jesus in the Scripture than that we have a personal encounter with Him. So how does Luke finish up this scene? What is, the, what, are, what is the response of these disciples once they recognize Jesus? Verse 33, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And my guess is they made the return trip a whole lot faster. Why? Because they had to tell someone, we've seen Jesus. And so they find the 11 apostles and the group, the larger group of disciples, and that group was overflowing with excitement. Why? Well, they're all talking about Jesus being risen. Well, that's different because earlier in the day, when the women came back from the tomb, everybody was like, nah, that can't have happened. Well, something happened between that point and now when these two disciples come back. What had happened? Jesus appeared to Simon. And apparently, when the ringleader comes back to the team and says, Jesus appeared to me, they're taking his word over the women's word. Go back to last Sunday and hear my words about women's words. But Cleopas and his friend join in this joy that he is risen and they share their story of what happened along the road and how they saw Jesus when he broke the bread. What's Luke's point? I think once more he's telling us, when you see Jesus, you're going to speak about him. When you see him in the scripture and he sets your heart on fire with that truth, you've got to tell somebody. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures unveil Christ. And Christ unveils the scriptures. The Bible shows us Jesus and Jesus opens the Bible to us by His Spirit. The Word shows us the Word, and the Word opens the Word. Why? Because it's all about Him. All of Scripture is all about Christ. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, we pray that you would continue to open our eyes 
by Your Spirit, would You keep on giving us a greater and deeper understanding of who You are and what You have done for us. And once again, I pray for those here who have never truly seen Jesus. Would You unveil their eyes today and help them to recognize Him? And for us who are Your people, May we search your scriptures so that we may see your son. We pray in his name. Amen.